If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is Dr. Philip Miles, a senior lecturer in sociology and English literature at the University of Bedfordshire. Am I right so far? You are indeed. You are a cultural sociologist, which is, wish I was one of them, with a specific <laughs> interest in the sociology of literature, um, the study of creativity, ethnographic methods, and the sociological and literary theory. Have I got everything there? That's right. You have? Yeah, it's a bit of a mouthful, but yeah, I guess I have an interest in all of those. Hey, things. it's a hell of a portfolio, never mind a mouthful. <laughs> but the bit I want to focus on for, before we get into it, because I've, I've invited Phil, Philip on to talk about uh, three films that have impacted everything in your adult life, and we'll, he's given me three titles, and we'll get onto that after this, this preamble chat. I wanted to focus on the study of creativity, brackets, processes, and spaces, because what I should let people in on is a little a little light onto dark is that you and I used to work at the same civil part of the civil service in that's right in years gone by so that's how we know each other we've both gone very different paths in terms of uh, social housing um and i've and, and one of the things that i've done since leaving that work is become a writer um, as well as podcasting and stuff but and one of the things that i had to learn was how to be creative because it's I, I was a journalist and I was a communications professional and that kind of stuff. So writing words was never hard. But when you get when you get to write things, which is, can you just do a summary of this policy? Can you give us the news as far as what, you know, what the, what the organization's doing? You know, these are, everyone's giving you the, what they want and then you just make it into a new form. Whereas I'd never worked mm. with a blank bit of paper before, like where nobody's asking you to do it. <laughs> Nobody wants <laughs> what you're going to do. <laughs> and nobody gives you shit. And like that's a- same in academia. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the same then, then you kid yourself on. You go, well, Jesus, you know, you start playing games and you start inventing things. You go, hold on a minute, I've got some it here, and then you start to grow it. Now, what I didn't know going into that was the relentlessness of never being told what to do. And that sounds weird from a work point of view because obviously. One of the biggest gripes you, I've ever had about work is, you know, to the point of like, I've got to do it because if I don't do it, they'll they'll get mm. cheesed off and I won't get paid, I'll get fired and stuff. But when it's just down mm. to you and only you, it's a really weird thing. Now, I I'd, I read a couple of books that really helped me. One was called Art and Fear, written by two art lecturers. They talked a lot about the compulsion in terms of creativity. And in fact, they mm. they even said, that they prefer the word work to creativity in a way. Oh, yeah. They always saw mm-hmm. artistic pursuits as being a work in progress on a work in progress, i.e. we're always learning. We never, we never stop. It's like, you, we, the, and, and that idea of, if I'm trying to say I'm going to, I want to be as good as Quentin Tarantino, that's like a nonsense idea. Whereas what I can do for sure is be better than I was 12 months ago. If I write, by definition, I'll have improved the writing. And the, the, the other guy was um, Stephen Pressfield, written a book called War on Art. And again, and he, he comes, he, he's a guy that came from screenwriting, so I could directly relate to what he was saying. And 
But again, his was just about relentlessness, about consistency, about persistence, about patience. None of these things are skills that people teach you in creative writing, but they are the things that you need around the right the the the, the process of trying to create something that nobody gives a damn whether you do or you don't. The the thing is, when you started, you said about uh, you know process and method and and mm. stuff like that. I mean. Uh, remind me of the line. Remind me of that word, the line, or those words, the line. And I'll come back to it in a minute. But the, I started to look at this because basically um, I was looking for a big project. Yeah. And um, I'd always been, you know, I was, you know, in my mid 40s, early mid 40s at the time. And I'd always been interested in why people carry on being creative long after. I think I, you, I've used this expression to death, but I'll use it again for the sake of our discussion. Yeah. You know, where a rock band who, you know, are playing live to 30 people, you know, once in a while, sometimes more than that, but you know what I mean. And long, long gone has been the, you know, the possibility of a major record contract and touring the USA and smashing up the Holiday Inn in Seattle or something. And I I became very interested in why they carried on doing this. You know, why why do people carry on being uh, creative into their 40s, 50s, 60s, sometimes when there is no hope, uh, like you mentioned earlier on, you know, no hope, but you know, but not little hope of worldwide superstardom, right? The, the, profit, so it's, it's it's the, profit, the profit motive has gone completely. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's that's a way of putting it. Thanks, Stu. That's a way of putting it. Yeah. And so I was kind of interested, you know, what kind of inspires them, what keeps them going? That doesn't mean to say that what I eventually ended up doing was working with people who had kind of given up hope and were just being, you know, just playing guitars or writing books for nothing. But basically, that was the initial sort of spark. You know, why do people keep doing it? And, and, you know, what does it feel like to be creative in your 40s and stuff like that? Because I I went on Radio Scotland a while ago to to explain, you know, there was, and I was saying at the time, you know, if you think about it, creativity, especially in the music industry, is often associated um with kind of breakthrough stuff when you're in your tw- early 20s yeah, you know yeah, you're yeah. kind of past it there's a band i'm really into at the moment from canada called always and I, their lead singer is about 32 or something i may be wrong but i'm sure she's around about 30 and i was thinking to myself you know it's it's kind of like the first i've heard of them and you know she's she's not middle-aged but you know you'd think that because oh, i suddenly appeared on the scene or certainly appeared on my radar you know, the, the, she's going to be like 21 or something. So it, it's that sort of thing going on in the background. Anyway, to get to the point, I um I started talking to a rock band up in the Midlands um, who were amazingly uh, welcoming and, and very interesting to talk to. And, uh, you know, they were dead serious about what they were doing. You know, they were, they, they were all experienced musicians. They'd been around the block a few times. They were just making music, releasing it, playing gigs and, and enjoying themselves. And so I spoke to them about why they did it. And what happened as a result of this, the, the project kind of um, mushroomed from that point where they started to explain this kind of place that they went to when they were when they were creating music. And any musician listening will know, you know, quite often it's in a jam situation, you know, where you start to sort of like jam tracks together and you start writing in that way. And they wrote as a group. And uh, so I started talking to them in more depth about this and they started explaining this almost like, now forgive me for what sounds a little bit silly here, but it's almost like trance-like state they go into where they kind of like don't know where they're going and when they come out the other end of it, they, they're not sure how they'd been there, right? So I, I flew with this idea and it went back to, it sort of started to remind me of this, this theoretical standpoint that I use. I promise I won't bang on and on and on about this, but I'll explain this it to people who are listening. Yeah, I'll explain what I kind of mean. Um, years ago when I wrote a PhD thesis, I used this um, this theory that I called the mezzanine, the sort of in-between state. But what I used it as, the reason I used the word mezzanine instead of liminality or something like that was I sort of felt that this kind of notion of being in the room but not of the room, you know. So it's kind of there but not there. Oh. It's kind of part of, the, part of the setup but not part of the setup, right? That sort of thing. Instead of it being sort of separated by space. And the thing was, I sort of realized that what they were actually explaining was a kind of psychological mezzanine, you know, this sort of thing about, you know, that sort of feeling when you're driving down the motorway and you think, where on earth did the last 20 miles go? I don't remember it. You know, I know I've been conscious and I know I haven't driven into the back of a lorry or anything. Thank God, you know, I'm safe and well, but I can't remember going past, you know, sandbatch services, right? (laughs) You know, that sort of thing. And so anyway, um, it's that sort of feeling. So I, I sort of likened this sort of idea 
to also, um, I, I then started to explain it in ways where they were explaining their songwriting and, you know, that's Sid Barrett, Peter Green sort of notion of everything is a cover version. The, the original only exists in time, you know, that nothing, every time you play a record, you're, you're playing a copy of it. Every time you play something live, you're playing a cover version, even if it's a cover version of your own song and so on and so forth. And I started to expand it into that sort of idea. Anyway, to get to the point, I started moving it out into artists, fine artists, potters, um, uh, writers, you know, sort of um, fiction writers and mm. so on and so forth, photographers, etc. And to my surprise, um, they all started explaining the same thing. And it was this liminal in-between space. Now, what this moved on to, and I'm nearly there, is uh, this this artist um, down on the South Coast. It, it, right, it all became a book called Midlife Creativity and Identity, available from Emerald Publishers. Ooh, we'll put a link in the show. <laughs> Basically... <laughs> from all good bookshops it was it was uh, published a couple of years ago anyway um this this guy who spoke to me was a fine a fine artist he'd invented himself as a fine artist and while we were in his studio um very nice place actually that he got set up um, on the south coast he started to sort of explain this to me and he said right the line right he said um right let me let me show you what i mean i said sure go ahead right and so he, he produced this piece of like you know paper or whatever piece of charcoal <laughs> And he said, watch. He said, I'm going to start drawing on this page. And he said, I don't know where this is going. He said, the line's going to begin. And um, I can't explain to you. I have I have no control over what's going to happen next, right? And I sort of um, said to him, but surely, you know, you must have an idea. And he said, well, yeah, I've got some ideas. But he said, but I've got kind of, there is an in-between state between the idea and the kind of production of whatever it is that comes out the other end. Mm. And I started thinking, to myself, that's really, really interesting. That's a kind of psychological mezzanine. It's like, in some ways, what the musicians are, I'm calling aura with the musicians, almost like the uh, Walter Benjamin sort of vibe about, you know, the, the aura of something, the kind of sense that it cannot be really repeated. And he was explaining it in many ways that you, you, ca- you never have full control over what's happening. Now, in terms of writing, I creatively write as well as academically write. Mm. You're well more advanced than I am on this. You know, you do your script writers. I spoke to script writers about this as well. And the, and the, and the, the sort of the, the process tends to be not haphazard, but it's this notion of you sit down and you start to write and you kind of see where it goes. You've got this rough idea, but you cannot ever foresee what is going to come out at the end of the trance when you stop, right? Yeah. So so that's how I set it up. And it, it's very similar. Recent stuff I've been writing, it's very, very similar to this theory by a guy called Henri Bergson, who, who explained this sort of notion of this kind of like productive, um, unconscious sort of point. Mm. And the way that I've theorized it is I've said, no, you, in some ways you even pop out of that. You, 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 it's, it's almost another, it's, it's like another phase that exists um, where it's, it's like the un, you, you, you've got a there's a sort of prep period then there's this kind of like weird production period that you have no control over and then really in, ma- in many ways the creative writing happens after the production do you know what I mean so in other words you're ordering it getting it right is the thing that is the creative part of it the other thing is just pure like you said earlier on like a sort of stream of consciousness not in the Joycean or Virginia Woolf kind of context. It's like a stream of consciousness that you really have no control over. Yeah. I go and sit in a coffee shop uh, once a week and I try and write my novel. I'm writing a comic novel at the moment. At least I think it's comic. Anyway, <laughs> It might be comic unintentionally. But basically, um, you know, I sit there. I kind of know where the story's going, but I don't know what I'm going to produce. And I think in some ways that's the best way of explaining it. So the process that I've always engaged with when talking to creative people. I thought about asking you ages ago. I thought, I'll ask Stu, actually, if he can give me an interview on this. Because it's basically that sort of sense of, it's it's almost like a a, 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 fant- a a sort of, to use that old expression, a sort of gay abandon. It's that notion that creative people in some ways, it's not quite being lost in the moment. It's like, it's like that sense of not knowing when it, the muses come and then you're off. And you really just don't know you're almost on autopilot without even knowing you're on autopilot. It's a really difficult thing to explain. No, 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 because I, I can relate. Because like the, the exercise I was talking to, just for the listeners' benefit, what I was talking to you about before we started recording 
I try every day. I don't every I don't do it every day, but I try every day to write three pages of stream of conscious in response to a photograph. Out of that process, I then changed the rules one time where I stopped looking at photographs and for 60 days straight, I just tried to write a continuous story without any idea where it was going. So I would finish the three pages and the following day I would go, right, what happens next? Without knowing, but I, the rules were always three pages only. I never wrote any more than that. And I did it for 60 days straight till I had a kind of shite novel. And then I turned, but, but I had so much background and backstory, I turned that into a screenplay. Now, I didn't start off with that process thinking I'm going to write a screenplay. It was just this dogmatic idea. And I, I, t- I, I teach at I teach at Liverpool Media Academy. I teach concepts of story development to first and second year undergraduates. And one of the things I'm constantly badging them about is, and it's interesting you call it like like, like an aura and all that. I just refer to it as tricking your subconscious into giving you the good stuff, because if you're conscious of it, you'll get nothing. It's like it's like it's like sort of going the other side of that, you know, suspension of disbelief in in novel reading. Hmm. Of course, you know, I sort of you know teach all that sort of stuff as well you know in some ways you know mentioning what a realist novel is to students i always say to them, well look you know the re- you know J- jane eyre goes off into the countryside and you know disappears into the middle of nowhere and wow she suddenly sort of like you know meets all these people she knows and knocks on a random door and it's her cousin john you know sinjin <laughs> rather and so i say well you know in real life so to speak it doesn't happen and the students say well how can it be realism and i say well the point is a realist story is a story that in some ways is being told for a reason right So in other words, in this story, it did happen. And that's the weird, weird thing about it. And I think in some ways, what you're doing creatively writing is you're you're reversing that. that You you are... You're not you're not suspending disbelief. I, I I had a good way of explaining this a minute ago. But I got I got sidetracked by Jane Eyre then. But basically, it's like you know that sort of notion of when you said you're sort of tricking yourself yeah. into this subconscious. In some ways, you, you're not tricking yourself at all. You are. It's it's almost meditative. But it's, the thing yeah. about it is, every single person I've spoken to, including the musicians, you know, obviously who, who you know plug in their guitars and and play their drum kit and off they go. It's that sort of sense of like the, the 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 meditation doesn't automatically happen. The writers said to me, you know, some days it does, some days it doesn't. And the 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 ceramics experts sort of said to me, it's what my hands decide to do, really. You know, it's like whether my hands are prepared to kind of like create something for me. And in some ways, it's that it's that it's that separation in some ways of the of the sort of haptic and the psychological it's this sort of sense of like you know i don't really can i can't really control what my hands are doing and it's like when you're typing on your on on your computer it's like i can't really control what my fingers are typing and you're not really thinking i can't control you're just off but it doesn't happen all the time so when you said about looking at the photographs i thought to myself that's like an exercise Mm. you know what i mean when i say i'm being rhetorical that's like an exercise, right? I look at a photograph, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of give myself a writing exercise to try and create a sort of bit of flash fiction or something around that, around that photograph. But the process in some ways that I talk about is not, is not, is not sort of doing an exercise. It's the bit that you were talking about a minute ago where you kind of say to yourself, right, I'm just going to write something and it's just going to come. Yeah. And you get that feeling you know, with a lot of modernist literature that you get that feeling, even though they might not admit it, if you could go back in time and talk to some of the modernist writers, they might not admit it. But in some ways you, you sense that that stream of consciousness stuff that they used to write was one of those things where they sort of sit down and they just stop when they stop. You know, you can imagine it. Wasn't it Kerouac who used to stick all of the um, bits of typewriter, you know, the paper together. And he just have this massive scroll coming out of the back of his typewriter. So he didn't change the, you know, know. and I think that's kind of like Kerouac obviously had a mega mezzanine, you know, he'd probably go on for hours without realizing what he typed up. Whereas, you know, I suppose the more, the more sort of um, the more, kind of conventional amongst us probably can manage but also an hour of it. the other thing i've the other thing i've learned in terms of create creativity for myself is the mm. power of dialogue so i'm not necessarily working yeah. with a collaborator but just sharing my idea and letting somebody react to it and then i react to the reaction and suddenly you begin to find clarity in what you're thinking and you might even find a new a new way of looking at what you're trying to think about that's complete opposite but without the dialogue you get you know you'd never get there on your own. I know, and I know Burroughs referred to this as like the third mind, didn't he? That if two people get together, a third mind is created by the very nature that. Or Levis with the third realm, 
or indeed it's Roland Barthes, isn't it? Roland Barthes and Foucault, you know, that kind of like, who is an author, the death of the author, in some ways, the death of the author being. That's the thing I always love when I teach teach the students this, I say to them, you know, you know, words are are not, don't, do not belong to us, right? Okay, they're recycled. We put them in an order and then it's up to a reader to make sense of them. But you can never, ever penetrate what the what the author means because you can never get inside the author's head and live their life mm. and see what the author saw. Um, as an exercise, for example, I give some of my students the opening, the opening paragraph of um, Laurie Lee's Cider with Rosie. What a cliche, but nevertheless, you know, half of them haven't read it these days, you know. And they see this, you know, I was set down at the cart on the, at the age of three, you know, and all this sort of stuff. And then at the end of it, they've all thought, oh, that's magnificent. You know, I say to them, what, can you, what do you see? And they just thought, oh, you know, sort of a field, you know, this, that, and this. No, 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 what can you see? You know, what is it? What can you see? And then they say to themselves, well, I, I don't know. I, I can see, like, you know, a, a field with a little boy. In it. I said, no. For example, what I see is is Lamphy in Pembrokeshire in the 1970s when I was growing up, right? That's what I see. Mm. Um, but there's no, Laurie Lee couldn't have seen that when he was when he was writing those particular words. And so in some ways, the value of, like you just said, you know, is letting somebody else have a, a scan, a read, a think, what do they see? In some ways, that collaboration, I guess, is also part of the process. But that's not, I've got to admit, Stu, actually, you've just got me thinking. I've, I've never interviewed a group of people about that. So that might be the next one. That might be the next paper. You know, collaboration, the death of the author and collaboration. But the thing something. is that the, where this all started for me is I was lucky enough to interview Genesis Peorage, and he always Ooh. viewed yeah. the reaction of the work by somebody else as being how he understood the work. He just made it without any true understanding of what he was doing. I don't mean that that he was I don't mean that that he was dumb to the process or whatever. No, 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 I know what you mean. Yeah. Whereas I've interviewed whereas I've interviewed other artists who are so controlling yeah. of what the message is with the work that if you so much as say, oh, this reminds me of this in the 70s, they go, well, it's not about that. It's not about that. And you're like, oh, no, no, yeah, no, no. Oh, I, I don't know. I shouldn't really cast judgment, should I? But no, I tend to be, yeah, no, no. It's, it's, um, in some ways, it's, it's like that old, you know, it's the vibe. You release your words into the wild, don't you? Yeah. And whatever people do with them, they do with them. It, all art is like that, isn't it? It's, um, I wrote, I, you know, I wrote a piece for the Byline Times last week and it's gone out there. It's me sort of, talking about something, you know, to do with Welsh independence, right? But I wish I don't believe in, by the way, unless it's unless it's linked to Europe, you know? Yeah, yeah, and like, yeah. so basically, you know, and, and my, my sort of view was, you know, slight sort of nervousness, anxiety about it, thinking, oh, well, people are going to have a go at me because, you know, I don't believe in, like, you know, the, the, the sort of Welsh independence sort of thing. But then after a while, you just think, well, that's just their own interpretation anyway. I mean, everybody's entitled to their opinion, as the cliche goes, but it's also everybody's entitled to interpret your work the way they want to. Uh, if you release it out there, that's part of the process, Absolutely. isn't it? You know, after no, all. I mean, I, even like my, my, little, my little writing exercise, which sort of keeps me, keeps me keen, as it were, I then I yeah. take the three pages and in that moment, I go, what have I just done? What is it? Is it about this character? Is it a story about this? Yeah. And I'll summarize it. And often, because of the nature of doing it in the morning, the first thing, it might be just what I'm angry about. So you end up sort of projecting onto the picture what you're angry about. Yeah. And there's a couple of times where, and generally I'm a bit kind of, I can get a bit class war about it. So if there's a picture of a posh person, I'll invent a fiction that the posh person is literally killing the poor to become successful or whatever. And every now and again, I'll look at my summary of what I've done and going, oh, should I, should I really, really? That seems a bit too too cold-hearted. And then I'll show my wife and she'll be like, oh, that's interesting. And it won't even, she won't bat an eyelid. And I'm thinking I've got a hand grenade in my hand and it's just four lines of text. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know what you mean, man. It's, uh, yeah, it's just, yeah, it, it's, it's, again, it's just back to that thing, isn't it? It's about, um, you know, I, I guess the Beatles felt anxiety on the 1st of June, 1967, didn't they? When they released Sergeant Pepper, they probably thought, what, did, uh, what, what are people going to make of this? What, 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 you know, do that? Will, will the people think we've gone crazy? It, it's, it's, you know, and again, it's just that it, it, a critical reaction to anything is always going to be loaded with biography, isn't it? It's, um, you get it, you don't get it. I mean, the stuff we're talking about today, um, you know, my reaction to the three films that I've chosen, um, were, were because, you know, you, you know, when you got in touch with me to ask me to take part, mm. you said three films that mean something might, might, and I thought, well, three films that, have, that effectively changed my direction. Yeah, yeah. And to me, they're three really important films. I, none of them are contemporary. In fact, the, 
the the the, the newest one is thirty years old. Yeah, nineteen. You know? It's um, it's so sorry, nineteen ninety. Yeah, ninety two. Yeah, that's right. Um, so yeah, it's a case really of like you know, at the end of the day, it's just you know, perception is is purely biographical in my view. I'm a strong believer in that. I think we read it through that. I don't know if you've seen the book. There's a book called The Psychology of Screenwriting, and it's written by a psychologist about about the process of writing screenplays. And and I interviewed the guy Bill Indick, who, who's the who's the psychologist who wrote the book. I think he did do screenwriting, if I remember rightly, and then carried on to become a psychologist. And and one of the things he revealed to me, which I wasn't aware of, because he uses he looks at Freud and all the on Jung and and shows you how their how their theories exist in how we write character. It's really fascinating. I mean, it's not like it's telling you something new. It's just translating it in a different way. Um, whether you you know whether you're a learned or an instinctive writer. But one thing he did tell me, though, is that no matter what I write, like, like say I'm writing a six-year-old girl having, having a bike ride through the Scottish Islands, I'm writing about myself. Yeah. If I'm writing about the captain yeah. of the high seas with a fleet of ships in 1725, I'm writing about myself. And I never knew yeah, yeah. this. I never knew that this yeah. is kind of what was fueling <laughs> everything I do. No matter how much I try and make myself not write about myself, everything... Is it, which made me then understand the idea of why you need diverse voices, because obviously I'm only one point of view. Mm. And no matter how diverse yeah. I might make my cast, as it were, in terms of or, or the world that I might set my story in, I'm still the only yeah. author. And you're, you're commanding what they're saying and how they're seeing it through their eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, and that's not that. Un, and it's not even about unconscious bias. It was like he was saying psychologically, you can only write about yourself. So whatever I'm doing. It's. I mean, it's weird to think that all writing then becomes cathartic, even though you're not conscious of it. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. You know, I could be writing some trashy horror film, and in some way, shape, or form, this is a cathartic thing about my own, about my own <laughs> psychological <laughs> makeup. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, but you, you, you basically, um, there's that sort of um, psychiatrist couch behind you. I think you need to lie down on that for a minute. Indeed. I'll take some notes. <laughs> Tell me about your childhood. Exactly. You know? Exactly. <laughs> Well, look before before I reveal too much, let us um, let us move into three films that have impacted everything in your adult life. And um, before we do, I will explain the rules to the listener that might come to this for the first time. Um, Phil has given me three films. We will talk about the three films, but only for five minutes at a time. And at the end of five minutes, we will hear this sound. Oh, God, that reminds me of being woken up in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Starting at the top, five minutes of counting. You've given me the first film on your list is Orlando from 1992, a Virginia Woolf adaptation written and directed by Sally Potter and starring Tilda Swinton, Billy Zane and Quentin Crisp. Where does that feature in your life story? Magnificence. Well, that is the, that is the and I don't want to sound all sort of like, um, you know, all, all sort of... Uh, self whatever the word is, you know what I mean? So like making myself sound too important, but it's the film that actually changed my, really changed my life, actually. It was a pure accident. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, I left school um, without many qualifications and I went into the youth training scheme and God knows what else. And I worked in the NHS for a bit and mm. I just enjoyed myself going to watch bands, you know, did a little bit of um, scouting with a friend of mine would watch groups and stuff like that and basically i was going absolutely nowhere and um i basically uh enrolled on an a-level course at a further ed college um just to test myself whether i could actually do something um a well-known a well-known musician actually said to me um in the uh well actually in an alleyway outside a, a, a small venue in derby i won't name him but basically he said to me what are you doing with your life man you should be doing something else a bit more constructive than than this and um i went went off and did these a levels anyway to get to the point um orlando appeared at uh, green lane um art cinema in in derby where i was living at the time and i just happened to chance upon an advert for this one afternoon sitting around at my friend's house steve hardy who's also a scriptwriter actually okay. and i said to him christ this looks really interesting do you fancy go into this thinking he'd probably say oh, i can't do it tonight or anything like that and he said yeah yeah let's do it so we drove down there and watched it 
And I've got to admit, it blew my mind. It blew my mind on many levels. And the meaning of it continues to reveal itself to me over time, 30 years since I first saw Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. It's time for another season of the Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find the Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. I mean, for me, it was a case of the film itself, you know, which was about, you know, all, all the stuff that Virginia Woolf was talking about, the longest love letter ever, you know, Vita Sackville West, et cetera, et cetera, gender fluidity and all that, the mores, the values, the laws of its ages and so forth. So as a sociologist, it's interesting too. Mm. But also as a literary person, which I have been sort of undercover for many years, um, it sort of set me fair on my way to university, ultimately to Cambridge, you know, which is where I ended up. And it's it, it it was one of those things that really, really influenced me to sort of buckle down, take literature seriously, work hard, get into this and get excited by it. So my interest, weirdly, in English literature was was kicked off by Virginia Woolf. That's why... Um, you know, I've got, you know, a big library at home and a big bit of it is it involves Virginia Woolf and, and stuff but, about but also interestingly there is through a film. Why why did a film how did the film manage to tap into that design? Well it's weird because I'd never read the novel. That was okay. the thing. I hadn't read the novel at that point in time. I knew who Virginia Woolf was, but yeah. Orlando was well, not quite obscure, but it was obscure to a twenty two year old. Yeah. And it was like uh, you know, we all we'd all heard of To the Lighthouse. And I remember my tutor saying to me at the time, Well, they go to the lighthouse, <laughs> you know, that's a Virginia Woolf novel for you. It's not even my favorite Virginia Woolf novel. That's Mrs. Dalloway, right? But this one, I mean, there's this there's, there's scenes in it. Um, the scene that always comes out of me, two scenes, two scenes. Okay. One is um where the arch well, Orlando has said earlier on to Sasha, the Russian pr- princess, you know, you you marry me because I am England and you are mine. And then later, after Orlando's transmogrified into a woman, um, the Archduke is offering to marry her so she can save her house. And she's getting, what, what's this about? You know, and he says, because I'm England and you are mine. And she, she just freaks out and goes into the maze. Right? She's had a massive set two in a salon with Addison and Alexander Pope and, and Swift, right? And basically she's really uptight. And she goes into this maze and that scene, the maze, has got to be my favourite all-time film scene. It, it's Sally Potter. It's, 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 a trans, you know, it's, it's a transitional scene. But it is magnificent. Anybody listening to this, go and watch that scene. You'll find it on YouTube somewhere. The Maze, right, from Orlando. And what she does is she comes out the other end. She comes out into that sort of like Austin, Bronte sort of era, you know, sort of late Regency, early Victoriana. And she runs off across the the moors and so what potter is doing is mixing the moors with um you know sort of devon etc so you're getting a bit of sense and sensibility in there and this that and the next thing shelmadine appears on a horse and it's it's willoughby um riding up to marianne after marianne has broken her ankle but on this occasion shelmadine is the person who's injured and orlando is the person asking if he's okay you know it's like he falls off his horse it's one of those great scenes. It's it's it, it it really seriously moves me, and I show it to my students every year in my cultural studies module. You know, and they think the same thing. I think you know. So it's a great film. I love it. I love it. Well, there's the first five minutes. There you go. See, uh, I could have gone on for another fifteen. But about did, did that feel okay for five minutes? Did it? Did it race? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, no. I, I, there were so many things I wanted to say about it. it. It was it was either that or it was Polanski's Tess because Tess also turned me on to Hardy. But that was earlier, you know. That was yeah. eighty nine. I first saw that. Yeah, so it was the yeah. It was really really important that film. And I still watch it. I still watch it over and over again. It's one of those with. I don't normally do that with films. My my eldest son is an absolute film buff, right? Yeah. He's 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 so, he's so into his movies. And, 
you know, as far as you know, uh, to him, you know, it's he's all he's fourteen, and he, you know, he's saying, "Right, I'm going to do English literature, then film studies as an MA." Right, I'm thinking, "Whoa, steady on, man!" But it's like he's totally into this idea, um, and he watches films a lot. But with me, he always berates me. Oh, you never watch any films, you know. This, that. But it has to be a good, good film that means something to me, and so that's one of that. That is probably the film. Okay, well, segueing in beautifully then to your second choice is uh, Gregory's Girl from 1980, the great B- Bill Forsyth starring John Sinclair, the largely unknown now Dee Hepburn, I guess, and Claire Grogan. What do you, uh, where does Gregory Girls fit in the uh, in the pantheon of Phil Miles? Well, the weird thing is we're going, we're, we're sort of going backwards and then we come forwards again with the third one. But basically the reason why I thought Gregory's Girl, I did sit and think, um, there's a whole host of those Forsyth films I, I thought were fantastic anyway and I, and I quite like you know you know. I also thought you know Train Spotting I don't know something like that I don't know films that I could with Shallow Grave you know I don't know you know something like that because I, I love those but I think with Gregory's Girl um, it sounds like it's sort of almost from the sublime to the ridiculous from Orlando to Gregory's Girl <laughs> but there's something about it I don't know it's the ultimate in my view in my view and I guess this is what it's all about it's the ultimate sort of uncertain teenager movie mm. And to me, it's a rite of passage film that has a genuine level of sort of um, uh, it's it, it's funny, but it also it also has that sort of sort it, it's sort of quite touching in places. It's very and it also speaks to a teenager, right? It's um, I remember basically myself and my friends when we were about fourteen. We're all into music, this, that, and the next thing. And we had two films that we used to watch on VHS. Over and over and over and over again. Yeah, classic sort of vibe, you know, where you'd be, you know, sitting around in an afternoon and you'd put a video on. One of them, believe it or not, was Bless This House, the the Bless This House film, which I still love. Seriously? I absolutely (laughs) love that film. I can't explain why. Well, I I love it. Who cares? I think it's a great, great laugh, that film, especially the psychedelic Morris Minor. But basically... Um, Gregory's Girl was the other one and I think in some ways with Bless This House it was just a good old laugh but basically with uh, Gregory's Girl it spoke to this bunch of 14 year old boys watching it because in some ways you identify with it you identify with in some ways Gregory was was both us and doing it for us as well do you know what I mean it was that sort of notion where he, he, you wanted him to succeed in it, right? But you also had a had an intrinsic knowledge in some ways in your fourteen year old teenage mind, where you thought Dorothy's not the right, not the right one, right? It's not the right one. It's gonna, it's got to be something else. I remember the first time I saw it. I remember thinking, I don't think he's going to get the girl, right? And it turns out, of course, Gregory's girl is fabulous. I mean, Claire Grogan, in her own way. I mean, Claire Grogan's fabulous anyway. But Claire Grogan in her own way, was the embodiment of a fab girlfriend that you would like. Exactly. Right? And so, yeah, in some ways, he showed it was possible to get the girl, didn't he? The right girl, right? If, you, if you're patient and you're a bit lucky and you've got a lot of good friends, you'll get the right girl. Um, and also, it also sort of had that balance as well between home and school and friends, you know, the universe of the in-betweeners, if you like. And also some of the jokes that run through it as well, which I'm sure a lot of listeners will remember. I'm sure you'll remember, Stu. You know, things like, you know, the, the high jumper who just appears randomly throughout it, just jumping straight into the bar constantly. And you've got like the uh, the food sales in the toilets, which is really funny. The borrowing of the jacket. You know, we all... <laughs> that but, sort but, of also, but also what I, what I remember, what, what, if, if I think of what I remember most about it, it's it's the fact that, it is about the cruelty of being a young person and not knowing, but there isn't a cruel bone in the film, if that makes sense. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, one of the best scenes, the, the scene that I love most of all is where his father, who's a, who's a driving instructor, only appears very briefly in the film, which is supposed to be like that because he never sees his dad. And his dad's sort of like giving a driving lesson, encouraging this bloke to try and run Gregory over. And I remember thinking at the time when I first saw it, I thought it was one of the funniest scenes I've ever seen in a film. It's brilliant. It's like, obviously, he winds the window down and they're strangers to one another, despite living in the same house. And I just think that's one of, it's just one of those brilliant sort of things, you know, the distance between father and son at that age. And, you know, the, the lack of communication is given this brilliant comic turn. So I think it's really well scripted. A lot of it was improvised. 
it used like, like a lot of those films like Quadrophenia, etc. Used a lot of young actors who'd been through sort of youth theatre groups, mm. who were brilliant actors and could just do it. Could do the kids, you know. They could they could just be kids because they were kids, and so it gave it that authenticity that's really important. I think it's a great film, uh, and Caracas, of course, you know, is where uh, where all, all of us kind of like thought we'd like to end up, but we all kind of knew in the end that. In their instance, Cumbernauld, and in our instance, wherever we were living was was kind of like the the boundaries of our reality, um, and that you know there was there was never a kind of pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I mean, there was only Claire Grogan, you know. It's since you mentioned the word authenticity, because <laughs> I think that's that's often the thing that is certainly missed. Oh, there's the time. I'll, I'll I'll finish my thought just for the for the sake as I start. I'm just thinking that it's 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 often the thing that gets. Certainly, when you get brought up on largely American teen dramas, where the authenticity is hard to see because you don't live in a small suburban town in Midwest America or on the outskirts of New York City or wherever the film might, or you know, Santa Monica. I mean, these are just fantasy islands, and the idea of a grey, cold sky against backdrops of terraced housing and high-rise flats and windy fields where it doesn't look inviting, but everyone's still playing sports. Um, was was genuinely authentic, and it's kind of like it, it, it reinforces an importance that I think that that sadly I think the dominance of of US entertainment you kind of lose somewhere in the mix because if all you all you're fed on is is this kind of Hollywood version of what younger that's is. right man yeah that's a good point actually yeah it, yeah you're right the, the authenticity in it. Again, like you say, in terms of their their, their school looked like my school, you know. Yeah. It's, uh, we, we, you know, admittedly we had more of a playing field than they did, but it was a case of like, <laughs> you know, rather play football on grass than sort of gravel or whatever it was. But yeah, you're quite right. I've got to agree with that. I, I think it's a great, a feel good movie, and funnily enough, um, just very very quickly because I know we're kind of breaking the rules here, but. I showed it to, I was in a band years ago and I showed it to the drummer of the band and his wife, who he, he hadn't long been married to. And they came over to our place one evening and we were sitting having a couple of drinks, What you know, 10, 15 years ago. I said, you've never seen Gregory's School? No, 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 we'd never seen it. So I put it on. I thought, I thought to myself, this is a hit and miss, miss moment. You know, they're either going to love this or they're going to think it's like the longest 90 minutes in their adult lives. And sure enough, it, it didn't miss the, it didn't miss the spot. You know, they, they got it. And, uh, even even his wife, who's South African as well, even she got it as well. I think wow. it's universal. I think it's a universal thing. I think it, it might have been set in Cumbernauld, but it could have been anywhere. You know, it's. Um, I think it's the same for, for for young people everywhere. So for your third choice, and knowing you like a do, I can imagine how this might have had an impact on your young life. Uh, we're going to talk about 1968's Monterey Pop, D.M. Pembeckers, D.A. Pembeckers, Bakers even, film about the greatest pre-Woodstock Rock Music Festival. Where does that feature in the life of Dr. Philip Miles? <laughs> well, that was... Um... And when did you see it, by the way? When did, when did you see Monterey Pop for the first time? I saw it, it would have been probably 86. Okay. 85, 85. Actually, probably 85. Um, Channel 4 put it on. Okay. And basically, um, I, I, t- I tell you the story behind this, right? Okay. I had one of those moments in 1985. I can even remember the dates, right? August the 5th, 1985, right? right? I went into Derby City Centre, where I was living at the time, with my parents, and I bought Revolver by the Beatles. Wow. And it was the first Beatles album that I bought. It was... Um, Basically, uh, I I got I had the blue album as a hand me down, yeah, the blue double, yeah, sixty seven to seventy, and I'd read, you know, Suggs and Paul Weller and God knows uh, loads of other people around that time had been saying, you know, Revolver, uh, you know, among other things, you know, was was one of the key albums of, you know, their kind of youth and their sort of transit musical transition. So I went and bought it, and I was blown away. And my Beatles obsession began there. Now, what actually happened was then, as a result of that. I had one of those mid-teen transitions, music-wise, yeah. where I became totally turned on by freak out music, by you know, kind of like you know that classic sort of psychedelia, dope and acid, hippie, San Francisco, everything you can throw at, right? Okay, was, was I, I became suddenly obsessed with you know Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, the Jefferson Airplane, you name it, right? Mm. Uh, basically, I always call it Pennebacker. It's not. It's pe- is it Penbacker? Pen Bakers. Pen Bakers. Pen Baker. Yeah. 
Um, Monterey Pop came on on Channel Four, and I taped it, re- I videoed it, and I watched it over and over and over and over again. My my uh, my adoration of the Jefferson Airplane came from that film. The opening sequence of it, you know, using um, uh, Scott McKenzie's San Francisco. Um, just, you know, all, all that kind of incidental sort of clips of, you know, sort of proper 1967 hippies during the sort of acid flower power era. Brian Jones appears momentarily in it. Um, you know, it starts off with this girl saying, have you ever been to a love-in? You know, just, you know, mm. it's it was just, it had that sort of feeling of renaissance, right? And it was something that, you know, it, it was a, you know, a, a film that I just watched over and over again. You know, you got the Who on there. So the Who were the transition man, right? I loved the Who prior to 1985. Yeah, you got the Jefferson Airplane, who were my who were my new obsession at the time, along with the Beatles, right? Okay, Jimi Hendrix. who I never became a massive Hendrix fan, but Hendrix is, um, you know, set at, at Monterey that we were we we could only see then. Now, due to the internet, we can see pretty much all of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, that that was pretty special. But the other thing that blew my mind as well was Ravi Shankar. And I show my students Ravi Shankar's clip, you know. Well, I mean, I don't show them the, show the whole clip because it's like you know about twelve minutes long. But right, the the, the sort of the climax of the festival, Ravi Shankar um, playing, and there's this fantastic moment where you see that you see he's you know him and I think it's Ali Raka hmm. are playing this sort of like you know sitar sarod. I don't know you know tablas and all that sort of going. And basically, it 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 goes to this mag- oh, you know massive climax. This piece of Indian music, right? And you you see for briefly the front row of you know it was like you know they were all sitting down you know on seats in this Monterey sort of sports complex stadium thing that they were using right by the 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 air you know the airport there. And you can see Mickey Dolence of the Monkeys, right? Go and check this out. You can see him, and he's just going, "Oh my God!" You know, they are all in raptures. Um, at this music that Ravi Shankar's playing, no doubt. I mean, who who wouldn't be when they listen to it? It's the most amazing climax to it. So it was excitement. Um, yeah, I became a goth, you know, pretty much, you know, within within twelve months from seeing it. But nevertheless, I mean, goth just became the next sort of phase on from being a hippie, really. But um, I went to Glastonbury in 1987 in the hope that it would be something like it, and I, I guess it probably was a little bit like it. Um, so yeah, Miss New Order because I, I can't remember New Order though I was there. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, it's a long story. You don't want to know. It involves homebrew. <laughs> it's not good, right? But basically, you know, I, I have seen New Order, but I can't remember seeing them. But basically, yeah, it, it, it was a pivotal piece of um, film, and I just loved it. I, I still do love it, and I still watch clips of it, and I still so- show my students in my cultural studies unit clips from it to show them what 1967 and the kind of the acid rock scene was about and how britain you know about the you know the 12 12 hour technicolor dream and you know monterey and all those things that were going on the precursors of course of all the stuff that eventually ended up arguably in woodstock but more de- more, more despondently at altamont at the end of 1969 i was gonna you know? say you're 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 uh, you're watching this in the mid 80s is yeah. sort of amidst the fact that you can you can watch the celebration in isolation, and I guess in pre-internet, you're not thinking about Altamont at all. Whereas yeah. the, the lineage of of the whole popular culture thing was basically the hippie dream ended in '69 at Altamont. Whereas, yeah, you're, you're kind of you're kind yeah. of miss you're you're omitting that from your own personal youth development because what you're seeing is the music that played at Monterey, yeah, as an artifact. Yeah. Now you're not seeing it as a as a living, breathing momentum of of, of the kind of you know, because because yeah. I guess you know we before 1960. I mean, what the hell were teenagers? I mean, they just were about yeah. emerging as as a force of their own, and like the exactly. idea that we'd take young people seriously was a was a nonsense. And then absolutely, and then by you know then by Altamont, it was like no, we shouldn't take young people seriously because they'll just lose yeah. their mind. Said the conservatives, and yeah, it took, it took <laughs> it was- one horrible thing to ruin it all. That's right, man. It's like the thing that I always love showing the students from that era is um, Grace Slick on the Smothers Brothers doing White Rabbit. Uh, in my view, it's the moment you can capture counterculture or subculture, really counterculture, mm. I prefer to call it. Uh, because like she's singing about, you know, the White Rabbit 
and the straits watching the Smothers Brothers, millions of them on a Sunday evening, watching the Jefferson Airplane do this weird sort of like colourful, you know, sort of like all, all the kind of, um, you know, the, the, the oil sort of um, slides playing in the background and Yorma Kakon and playing, you know, sort of playing his guitar with Ed Band on and Jack Cassidy with his long air playing the bass. And Grace Six standing on the top of this. I, I think if I remember correctly, I'm pretty sure she's standing on the top of the piano. And the thing that gets me about it, it's a perfect moment because she's singing this song, the lyrics to White Rabbit, straight into the camera. She's looking straight into the camera. So she is looking straight into the, the, the living rooms or lounges, whatever you want to call it, of middle America on a Sunday evening, right? In 1967. And she's singing to all the straights and the parents. She's singing about Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland, right? To all of the turned on kids, she's talking about something very, very different indeed. And basically the clues are in the, the lyrics, you know, the, the ones that mother gives you don't do anything at all. But the, the, it's the crescendo. It's the massive sort of like crescendo of the song, um, Feed Your Head. Um, is is probably the moment I think where basically it, it was almost peak sort of uh, counterculture that was because I don't think you know anybody had ever got got into the got into the lounges the living rooms mm. of of all of the straits Vietnam was raging in the background and all this sort of stuff and and she was sort of saying effectively you know what I mean but they don't know what I mean you know and I love it I, no, I think it's a great moment to, you know, you, out of interest how do you think for you as a as a young Brit, this 1967, 68 music was able to cut through post-punk Britain, you know, like yeah. Well, it was it was the thing, I mean, just like everybody else. I mean, I the weird thing with me with punk rock was I got into punk rock, I got into peel and punk rock when I was about 13, 14. Yeah. I went off it and came back into it when I was a goth, if you know <laughs> what I mean. So I, post-punk gothic music, you know, Bauhaus and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It did come when I was 17. I, I you know, I, I didn't get that sort of stuff. Even Joy Division came when I was 17. I, I, I hadn't engaged with them properly. I was probably just engaging with what you would call traditional British 1976 7 punk music. In fact, to me, my favorite punk band, controversially, with the Jam, if you know what I mean. The mm. Jam's first album in the city to me was like, you know, a power pop punk record. Oh, yeah. And I don't think it gets celebrated enough as that, actually. But um, the hippie thing, I think, was just for me. It was a case of like, you know, I'd understood the 60s. I'd understood the sort of mod stuff. I'd understood everything like that. And for me, it was, um, so we were listening, myself and a couple of friends, we grew our hair a bit. We were wearing headbands and flares before the Stone Roses got into them, right? Okay, it's a few years before the Stone Roses started doing this. Basically, you know, in terms of flares, that is. Mm. Basically, we were, you know, we were listening to Gong a lot, you know, early Gong. not, yeah, yeah, not yeah. The, Daft stuff that came later, you know, those first four or five gong records, bit of early Hawkwind. Didn't matter. I, you know, Johnny Rotten can't say you can't listen to Hawkwind, right? Okay. Cause he's already, he was on record even then as being a big Hawkwind fan himself. So, you know, we were listening to, you know, early Hawkwind, you know, pre Lemmy era even, um, gong, all that sort of stuff. But also, this kind of, this, not just the Beatles, the Beatles were representative of British counterculture. We were listening to all this sort of like West Coast American stuff. It still takes pride of place in my record collection. I've got practically a full set of airplane albums, you know, you name it, everything, you know, mm. like I mentioned earlier, Crosby, Stills, Nash, Young, you know, the birds, you know, on and on it goes. But for me, I'm not joking. If, if, I, if I get in a time machine, that would be the place I'd go. Monterey, Monterey, Southern California, 1967. And then I'd just get, get in a bus and head up to hate Ashbury straight after it. I know it all went wrong within a few months. But, you know, to be able to go and witness that scene, I'd witness that over Woodstock. I'd witness that over a lot of things, you know. And it's, um, for me, that was, the, that was a, a seriously important moment. I mean, I, I knew Don't Look Back. I'd seen that, you know, the Dylan one. Yeah. I'd seen that prior to Monterey. But I thought, wow, uh, Pennebaker, you know, Pennebaker has, uh, did one on, 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 on the sort of hippie scene in San Francisco. Of course, it's not Frisco. It's, it's south of LA. No, it's in between LA and San Francisco, isn't it, Monterey? But basically... Um, for me, you know, what you see, you, what you see at the start of the Woodstock film, mm. you know, um, with Long Time Gone playing over, you know, Crosby, Stills and Nash, Long Time Gone playing. Great bit of music that is as well. Um, to me is like, you know, Monterey, you know, transposed over over 24 months later. What you see at Monterey, I mean, that's the reason Brian Jones is there. 
you know, who's, who's another hero of mine, you know, um, who's from the town I live in, actually, these days. Um, he, he, you know, he's sort of, I remember me and my mate watching this going, is that Brian Jones from the Stones there? And it's obviously, it's only, it's only sort of later on that you realise that, yeah, he sort of dropped into California for that and they're hardly surprised to what Brian Jones was like at the time. But, you know, it was... Well, uh, look, it's, it's going back over, going back over your three films, it's interesting that the first two was like well, the first one was like you and your mate go make a big make a, a, a basic decision to go watch a film and then together you share this thing that becomes life changing for you. Then you've got you and your mates with one of two films on VHS that you watch together, and then yeah. it's interesting that your last choice is something you caught on Channel Four, and it yeah. became your own your own little indoctrination into, and I mean that I don't mean that pejoratively, but into something that you didn't you weren't aware of. That's and that, right, and that opened its own door. I think that's really, I think it speaks. It speaks to the. It really speaks to the. I mean, because they're so different. All three of your choices. It's interesting yeah. how they could uh, how they could have the impact. They could have the effect on one single person. But then that's kind of the joy of it all, isn't it? That's it. Yeah. No, nobody understood us either. It was weird. There was like two or three of us who got into this. And we were just in suburban Derby and everybody else had, you know, kind of like, we're, we're listening to, you know, U2 and Simple Minds and stuff. And, you know, we're, you know, all the people we knew at school and stuff were into all this straight music and stuff, which wasn't bad. It, you know, it, you know, it wasn't my scene. I was listening to other stuff, but they, they thought we were crazies. You know, they thought we'd kind of lost the plot completely. The, you know, where did, well, you know, why has Phil got this little mushroom thing, you know, sort of stitched to his flared jeans? Well, what's happened to him? <laughs> what's gone wrong there, man? Why is he talking about Bob Dylan, the Beatles and the Jefferson Airplane all the time? But, the re- you know, two years later, we were completely sort of, um, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm trying to think of the word now. Vindicated. No, but I mean, you know, the Stone Roses started. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Playing this sort of stuff, and 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 then and then yeah, you know, Supergrass are playing Neil Young covers, and you know, bloody what, sorry, excuse excuse the language. I don't know if that's allowed, but you know, um, uh, you know, Oasis are, are banging on about their influences. And I'm sort of thinking maybe I should have stuck up my guitar practice because, you know, I was thinking I'm, I saw Supergrass in I can't remember what year it was. Um, I've seen them quite a few times. I can't try to remember which gig it was. But they played a cover of Cinnamon Girl by Neil Young. Neil, you know, Neil Young's um, Decade album was a hand-me-down. And th- that was the same era that I was listening to it. And Cinnamon Girl was just one of those tracks that we, we just had on constant repeat, you know, on the record player, literally, that side of that album. Mm. It, it would, the, 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 the needle would come off and go back on again, right? And uh, I was thinking to myself, well, they were obviously listening to the stuff at the same time. You know, they were they were getting into this. Where were they? You know, we had no way of making contact with one another. But obviously there were these turned on kids who were listening to all this 60s. Well, God, like- do you know what? And I'm going to sound like an old man shouting at the sky. But in a way, yeah. thank goodness, not for the, for the internet didn't exist then. Because it would have connected people who were busy just sort of mining their own furrows and stuff. And I think that's yeah, where. It's a good point. Yeah, I think it's it where I think yeah. it's where the interesting stuff comes. I mean, not not to say there isn't interesting stuff now because it's obviously not for me. I'm not the youth anymore, but mm. I think that 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 joy of something just mushrooming out of seemingly uh, nothing because a couple of people have decided to pay attention to something specific. That, yeah, that, that is just out of time and out of touch. Is always is always the fun part of it all. Well, look, sir, we've uh, we've reached the end of the podcast. Um, Remind us, what's the name of the book you did about the midlife, um, what was it? It's called, it's called Midlife Creativity and Identity. Okay. It's, it's got some sort of life into art. Midlife Creativity and Identity, it's called. It's um, it's in paperback, actually. It's on Amazon and stuff, the usual things. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, yeah, yeah, nice one, man. It's, it's yeah. a fascinating subject, and it just it's is... It's very me- sociological, though, right? It's, it's um, what, what I will say, uh, by all means, please, anybody who's interested, please do read it. It's great. It's got ethnography in it. It's got interviews with uh, you know people who create stuff and yeah. it's entertaining in its own way but it is it is a sociological tract <laughs> no, no that's so, cool that's cool yeah yeah well Sorry. look it just gives me to say thank you very much for giving your time on the britflix podcast yeah you thanks very much Stu. thanks for inviting me it's good to see you again hear you again and um yeah it's been a gas
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.